and they were lit up like constellations by this bioluminescence. So, so it's movement in the water that triggers the bioluminescence. And where, where my peak was hitting the water was like sparks coming off an angle grinder. And the propellers, the propellers of the skiffs are spinning in the water. You know, they're tied up next to the mothership and they're spinning in the water and there's spirals of bioluminescence coming off them. And I'm standing there just mesmerised, as you can imagine. And I look up and there's 14 feet of bioluminescent crocodile closing in on me. <laughs> that was Peter Morris sharing a close encounter with a crocodile. You guessed it, we're going down under today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Are you interested in heading out on an amazing Alaskan trip? You can find out how to join me on this hosted trip uh, this summer to the final frontier. Go to wetflyswing.com slash AK to get more details and find out if this trip is right for you. In today's episode, I talk with Peter Morse, a.k.a. the Lefty Cray of Australia. Even though uh, uh, Peter will tell you he doesn't uh, necessarily love that um, that term, he, that's kind of what he is in Australia. Uh, Peter describes how to present a fly for Barramundi, one of his favorite uh, species out there. Why the hit is like a hammer blow and the vast diversity of fishing in and around Australia. So, without further ado, here's Peter Morse. How's it going, Peter? Yeah, good, thanks, Dave. How are you, mate? Good, good. Thanks for coming on. You're, uh, I think you're on the other side of the uh, the world. Uh, we're chatting here, which is the amazing thing about this uh, this online stuff. One of the good things we could we could have a conversation. Probably, we, I'm not sure if uh, if we'll meet down the line. Hopefully, we do. But um, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about your background. You're known out there as kind of the. Um, I've heard different names, but like the Lefty Cray in Australia, you're you're one of the big names out there. I want to talk about all that, how you got there. But first, can you tell us how you first got into fly fishing? Um, yeah, I, the the Lefty tag sort of was a little embarrassing for me. I mean, he was such a great man, and this is such a small pond down here, and uh, he was such a huge man in the international scene. But yeah. I, I, I guess. Um, I guess as far as beginnings, my, my grandfather and my father were both fly fishermen and I inherited um, uh, a fly rod, old hardy cane fly rod and a hardy perfect reel and a very, very coily silk fly line that was like a one of those slinky things you walk mm-hmm. down the stairs um, when we moved to Australia. So I was born in Fiji and grew up there and I didn't know Dad was a fly fisherman back then, uh, but I certainly knew my grandfather was. Anyway, I inherited all this gear when Dad died, and uh, and it was it was I, I still remember the day. It was like uh, some switch had been thrown, some light came on. Uh, I do believe there's a I, I like to call it a fly fishing gene, mm-hmm. and it usually takes something to for that to kick in, and that's what exa- exactly what happened to me. And I, you know, I, I we were living in Sydney at the time, and I'd come from Fiji, and, and uh, of course, I didn't. I'd never been to the mountains. I I didn't even know what fly fishing was, but, <laughs> uh, you know, suddenly I found myself caught up in this world, 
And I never looked back from there. Uh, at the time, I remember wanting, geez, this is all I want to do. And, of course, you can't, couldn't make a living from, from it, you know, particularly back then. That was, that was 1974. 74? 74, yeah. It just sort of set me on a path. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, I think it was Mark Twain who said, the secret to a happy life is to make your vocation your vacation. Or it may even have been the other way around, your vacation, <laughs> vocation. But uh-huh. that's sort of what I've done, and I like to, I like to boast to my friends that I haven't had a proper job since 1989. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what was that? So 74. And how old were you in 74 when you first got your when your your dad stuff? I was 20. You're 20. Okay, 20. so 20 years old, and then. And then what did you do from there until 89? Um, did you have just different odd jobs? And, and, and how did, what yeah. was that transi- transition like? Uh, I worked in the wine industry. I was very fortunate to get a job with a um, one of the great men of wine in Australia, a fellow called Len Evans, who was a worldwide figure within the wine industry. And I worked for him for a number of years, and then I, I went off and, I became a sommelier. I did wine lists for restaurants and, uh, you know, I worked, I mostly worked weekends, sort of Friday, Saturday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and I was a wine judge and I fished the rest of the time. Uh, I moved out of Sydney to the mountains so I could go, basically go trout fishing. Mm-hmm. And in in sort of the middle of all of that, I discovered saltwater fly fishing too, so that was that was in seventy six seventy seven. Yeah, so yeah. so my background is basically the wine industry, and I realised, you know, in the mid eighties that being drunk for a living didn't have a big future. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I I preferred going fishing anyway, and there wasn't a big future in that, but at least you stayed healthy. Yeah, it is. Is I, I occasionally ask that question about you know vices or things that we do to ourselves that aren't maybe the healthiest. Is has alcohol? Has that been something that you you know kind of went away from? I mean, it's, I mean, obviously uh, we've all had a little taste, or a lot of us have had a taste of it. But has that been something that's kind of been a uh, uh, you know a crutch or something that's you, has impacted your life? Uh, no, I hope not. Uh, I certainly do enjoy wine, uh, fine wine, still. Um, you know, our, my whole family have been in the food and wine industry. Uh, I have a stepson who's a winemaker. I have a son who's a chef. My other son's wife is a chef. My current partner, her ex-husband is a chef. Her <laughs> sister's a chef. Wow. So we've had the real food and wine thing within our family and uh, or our families. Yeah. Uh, I still enjoy wine, but I... You know, my capacity to drink it is very limited these days. I don't – and I'm certainly I'm certainly very cautious about uh, wine or overconsumption in particular, getting in the way of being able to live a healthy life. Yeah. Uh, you know, if i got to keep doing what I'm doing and what I've been doing for the last uh, many years, then I, I make a big effort to stay pretty healthy. I eat very well, and I drink very much in moderation these days. Yep. Um, yeah, so I, I keep a really good lid on it. But 
Uh, there was there were some big years back. Yep, that's <laughs> back, right. <laughs> back in the day when a younger body could deal with it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think we all. It seems like most of us have gone through that period where you you kind of abuse your body and you make it through. And then you hit your whatever period that is, your thirties or forties or fifties, and you realize, wow, I, I can't really. Uh, my body is it uh, is uh, what's the uh, the word for it? You know, it doesn't recover as quick as it used to. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and and, and the moment it, for me, the moment it starts to interfere with my ability to fish and enjoy fishing and and in particular that word enjoy fishing um because you know that wine and booze really disrupts your sleep pattern my sleep pattern anyway and yeah. if i'm not getting a good night's sleep i'm not fishing well and i'm not enjoying it you know yeah um so and i really want to enjoy it i i um i still fish pretty hard when i'm out there and i don't i don't want a big night on the booze, messing around with my enjoyment of my of fishing. No, definitely not. No, it's, it's yeah, it's interesting. I, we've talked about. In fact, I have a question. Sometimes I ask at the end of the episode in the kind of the rapid fire round. I kind of jokingly call it, but you know, what is your favorite drink to have when you get off the water? You know, in in the evening, would would yours be a nice uh, glass of wine? Is that what you go for? Yeah, absolutely, a good glass of red wine. Yep, yeah, yeah, but. You know, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I don't drink. I mean, I was in the U.S. recently, and I caught up with a great old mate, and we, I went and uh, bought a wonderful bottle of red wine, and we sat down and had dinner, and we consumed that thing. And I can tell you, if there'd been another one available, yeah. <laughs> we would have drunk that as well. But you know, that's 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 uh, a moment uh, fired by great conversation, great food, great wine, and a great old friendship. So yeah. you know. I, I'm certainly, certainly if the moment's right, I'll be there. That's it. I'll be there batting hard. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Nice. Well, uh, yeah, I was going to check in too. You mentioned, uh, you know, your dad uh, uh, passing away and leaving your, um, you know, some gear for what, what did your folks do back back then, you know, when they were alive? Or I'm not sure if you're, what your mom did or if she's still alive. Yeah, mom's still alive. She's 93, still wow. lives by herself. She's in great health. She lives, still lives in her own home. Um, so dad, dad was a Spitfire pilot, um, war in World War II. And after the war, he, he got a job in Fiji where he met mum. So mum came out to Fiji prior to World War II. Her parents came, migrated from Scotland to New Zealand. And then he was a boilermaker and he got a job in Fiji. So mum and dad met in Fiji after the war. And of course, I was born there, and I had three sisters. So he he worked for the sugar company over there, and you know his job was to coordinate the harvest, work with the farmers, uh, you know, do do all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an Australian company called CSR, and and uh, yeah, he worked for them, and uh, he died over there, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was back in seventy one. Oh wow. Yep. So, yeah. Right. So, okay. And, uh, yeah, I kind of was thinking too, I mean, this is kind of, I know you're, you're probably not a historian, but just thinking back, you know, when you think of Australia and New Zealand, I mean, we hear a lot about it, you know, obviously the fishing New Zealand comes up a lot with all the great fishing there. When you look at Australia, what, what do people, you know, what are people coming there from out of the country to fish for? Is there a species that, that people really target or one that comes to mind? One of the, one of the really big issues in Australia is that we have so many species. 
it really it it's you know I've fished the Florida Keys and you've got tarpon, you've got bonefish, you've got permit maybe. One of the issues facing us here is what fly do I tie on at the start of the day? Which rod do I pick up? Because <laughs> you encounter so many different species in the course of a day that you know you've got to have two or three rods rigged, or you've got to be or you've got to be very focused uh, to target one species. Uh, we do have so just starting with trout, we do have some reasonable trout fisheries. I mean, Tasmania, the World Fly Fishing Championships are on there oh, yeah. uh, this month. Oh, right. And Ta Tasmania has some unbelievably fine trout fishing, <laughs> most lakes, very often in shallow lakes, and uh, it's, it's, it's very much like bone fishing. So it's almost all sight fishing but for trout. Wow. There's also – the more traditional uh, boat fishing methods, uh, lock style mm -hmm. uh, down there. Uh, it's 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 a truly world class fishery, but it flies under the radar because most people coming from Europe or the US tend to just stop at New Zealand. That's right. So we've sort of got Tasmania to ourselves. <laughs> uh, on the mainland, so Tasmania is an island off to the south of the of the Australian continent. On the mainland down in the southeast corner, we have the Snowy Mountains, and throughout that area, there's there's a lot of fine, small trout streams. No big rivers, though. Um, you've got to understand that the geologically, Australia is roughly the same size as continental US without Alaska. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, so it's a big continent, but it is extremely flat. So the highest mountain is 6,000 feet. You know, and so it's very dry. As a consequence of having no mountains, it's very dry. But we do have small alpine areas that do have some pretty good trout fishing. The rest of the continent is uh, desert or semi-desert or, or arid, and so we. but we have this very, very large coastline. So we have some fantastic saltwater fly fishing around that coastline, and then we, there are regions um, that have wet seasons and dry seasons, and the wet season being monsoonal. Mm -hmm. And often uh, we call them cyclones, you call them hurricanes. A lot of the rainfall is, is cyclonically driven, and they have big rivers, seasonally big rivers, but also with um, – uh, large freshwater lagoons and river systems. And and the main fish of those systems is barramundi. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people know barramundi. Uh, these are a uh, – but a lot of people don't know about their life cycle. They're actually catadromous. Yep. So they, if you're an adromous fish, they do their, their – they spawn in saltwater and they do most of their growing in freshwater <laughs> in those large lagoons, which we call billabongs. Uh, but those areas are across the north of Australia and also down the east, the tropical east coast. But the west coast uh, is where the desert, sort of the, the, the great deserts of Western Australia meet the Indian Ocean, has some fantastic um, saltwater fly fishing, some patches of good barramundi fishing, but a lot of great, great blue water and flats fishing. 
Around the southern half of the continent, there are uh, quite a few different species. There's some pretty good saltwater fly fishing. Uh, new stuff's being st still being discovered every year. So our, our fly fishing scene is is evolving uh, fairly rapidly. There's lots. Of, we're in the middle of a big drought at the moment, so a lot of people are looking for other uh, outlets for their fly fishing, and that really pushes pushes development. You know that that's that's our current climatic situation is pushing people to go and look in other places. And that's that's all very exciting. There's exciting stuff happening all the time. You know, I stay pretty much on top of what's happening on social media. And, I, you know, some of the stuff I'm seeing is, is just fantastic. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the other side of it, we have the Pacific Ocean. We have New Zealand not far away. Right. We have some fishing in the Indian Ocean, north of Australia into New Guinea. So Man. so we're pretty well served with a lot of extraordinary fisheries. That's amazing. Yeah, you guys have yeah. – there's not really – it sounds like there's not really too much reason to, to leave. You could – you could you've got it – it sounds like you got it all there. The one thing we don't have is anadromous fish. Oh, right. You know, and I – you know, we, we – we, <laughs> Right, they tried to introduce salmon to Tasmania, but they swim out to sea, and we just never see them. Oh, again. no kidding! Yeah, no, they're just gone. They're gone. They never come back. Yeah. Um. So God knows, I don't know what happens to them. Whether the ocean, the ocean currents are probably just completely wrong. Huh. And we, yeah, we do have a lot of great fishing, but we do lack those big freshwater rivers. Uh, um, we do have them. I mean, we do have them. Don't get me wrong, but they don't have anadromous fish. Yeah. And I quite enjoy fishing for those uh, for those creatures. No, it's yeah, a little, it's a little different. No, I I want to dig into a little bit maybe on uh, the barramundi because that's definitely like you said a lot of people know of that species and they've heard about it. Um, but before we get there, I, I want to dig a little bit more into you know the story of how you got there. I know I was talking to a friend of mine, Paul, recently, and he was he was mentioning that he listens to this podcast and he loves it. He loves it for the stories hearing about how these people like yourself got to this place of. You know, I, I think fly fishing has been. You know, you've managed to make it a uh, a way of you know your your income for your uh, for quite a while here. And can you tell me how that that happened? Like in '89, you mentioned you, you started. I guess that's when it was a full time thing. How did that all happen? And, and how do you do it today? Sure. Um, the one thing I was good at at school was writing, and I read a great deal. I mean, growing up in Fiji, of course, there was no television. And the radio was on between 6 o'clock and 8 o'clock in the evening. So I read books. Um, I consumed a vast number of books when I was young. And consequently, I, I really enjoyed writing. I love the English language and, um, and what it can bring to life. And pretty soon after I started fly fishing, I decided I wanted to write about it. So... I started working on my writing ability. I did a couple of courses, and I think I think it would, would have been about seventy-five. I produced my so I hadn't been at it for very long. I produced my f first article, which wasn't published. I I bought a reasonable camera, a, a Nikon. Gee, I mm -hmm. can't even remember. I think it was an F F four. It may have been. I learned to take photographs. I I did a photography course, and I decided there and then that that's what I wanted to do. And I hmm. 
sort of uh, set my sails in that direction. I, um, I, uh, I, I started writing. That was a long process, uh, learning how to produce articles. But I had remembered from school that a good story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm-hmm. And the beginning and the end need to relate to each other. And I, I worked on those principles. And I, I guess I've, I've always been a, a bit of a natural storyteller. So putting those putting a, a, a readable story, an interesting readable story onto paper was was not too difficult for me. Uh, and taking photos back there, man, hmm. the cost of film was horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You know, you're trying to get action shots of jumping jumping fish. All right. Man, and I think I think slide film back then was costing me fifty bucks for for per roll, with wow. including the dripping. So it was an expensive and long process. But I wrote uh, for for a number of years um, and and sent material to magazines and had stuff published. Mm-hmm. Then my big my big breakthrough came. Uh, I I'd, I'd done a lot of saltwater fishing, and my big breakthrough came when I was offered a job to captain a marlin fishing boat or a sport fishing boat back in Fiji. And I went back to Fiji in 1989, and that was my big break. And I spent a couple of years over there uh, driving boats around the islands. Then I came back to Australia in late 1991 and penniless, absolutely. I had, I think, 13 cents to my name. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, yeah, and fortunately, I have a wonderful woman in my life who uh, helped me through a lot of that uh, very difficult period. Hmm. Then I I got a job in New Guinea uh, working for a guy called Dean Butler. Uh, Dean is uh, is a legend in this part of the world. He is um, he explored New Guinea for the famous New Guinea bass and have spent a lot of time up there. He since went on to become uh, Tom Evans' right-hand man is, was involved in all of Tom Evans' mm-hmm. world record marlin captures and uh, and fishes Florida a lot for tarpon up in Homosassa. But anyway, Dean and I go back a long way, and, and he, uh, he gave me a job as a guide in New Guinea, and I spent a couple of seasons up there. I got malaria and <laughs> pneumonia and got pretty sick and came back to Australia. And I'd done some film work back in the 80s with a guy called John Hankey. Uh, John made John made uh, a couple of videos when Lefty came down to Australia in the late 80s, 87, 88, and I actually got to meet Lefty in Sydney and, and uh, had some wonderful casting time with him. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, John, John um, asked me to present a, a small documentary he was filming he had a background in television um, for a local council, uh, and it was a prom- tourism promotional documentary. And um, while we were on the road, we got chatting about about uh, making – John had always wanted to make a TV series. And I said, well, hang on, I know a bloke who works for a TV station. <laughs> hmm. And we uh, – 
we sent him through. We sent this fellow through a proposal. He was number two at the t- at this TV station. I happened to know him again through my wonderful partner wow. and Monique, and and we got the thumbs up to produce a television series on fishing. Wow, and that's that, that's wild. Is that wild? The wild fish. That's the wild fish series. Yeah, um, it was on primetime television, eight o'clock on a Tuesday night. It ended up being sold to 32 countries around the world. Wow. Sage were uh, Sage put in rods and reels and, and what have you. So I formed this um, um, association with Sage, which actually goes back to when Lefty came down to Australia. He, at that stage, put me forward as being one of their, you know, potentially one of their young, young guns down here in Australia. Yeah. And uh, so I, I have an association with Sage going back a long way, and they 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 put a lot of gear and into into the TV series, and I guess from there uh, we shot a second series, another thirteen episodes, so twenty six episodes altogether. And you know, I guess geez, once you've been on television, <laughs> um, all sorts of doors open, all sorts of things happen. Right, I've never. I've never allowed that to uh, to um, mess too much with who I am, though. I, I think there's a there can be a uh, yeah you, you you can go pretty wrong in believing that because you're on television you have something pretty special, and so I've always tried to stay away from going down that path, you know. Yeah. To to remain relatively humble. I mean, this is not. This is not curing cancer or, you know, what have you. It's just bloody fishing in the end. Right. But the fact that I that standing in front of a camera uh, never intimidated me and I huh. could string the words together, I guess, uh, you know, I, I found something that I could actually do pretty well there. That's and, pretty cool. And write, write the script and tell the story. So. So I guess that that was the big moment that changed my life. Yeah. What do you think, uh, you know, as far as being behind the camera and that whole thing, what what prepared you? Why, do you think you're just naturally that was one of your talents? No, it was just naturally one of my talents. Look, I did a lot of theater at school. I oh. really I really enjoyed uh, the world of acting and theater, and it was something I did pursue briefly after school uh, in, in live theater, but they had me – you know, that was, they just sort of had me being an usher before I was for six months before I could actually <laughs> get a part on stage, and I got pretty jack of that and went fishing. <laughs> no kidding. So, so that was your. If you wouldn't have been a fly fishing, uh, you know, the guru or you know what you are today, your other job might have been as an actor. Yeah, perhaps so. Yeah, I, I it, look, it, it, I really enjoy that side of it uh, of getting in front of a camera. Uh, I, I, I should just say it just doesn't intimidate me. Uh, you know, some people can have a good relationship with the camera, and I, th- I think that I've always been, always been reasonably good there. You know, yeah. it's it's not a, it doesn't. It, I don't. I'm not lost for words. Huh. I can, I, I my, uh, you can operate. My thought is ahead of what I'm going to say. So. Uh, you know, you, you're not. I'm not repeating myself, not stumbling over words, and you know, so that makes for a good relationship with the camera and the person behind it. Yeah, and and that's just that's that's just a natural ability. Mm-hmm. 
What what do you think you from the whole movie? And I'm not sure how many seasons you did there, but um, you know, what did you learn, or what was your takeaway from uh, being behind, you know, doing that that work with the TV series? Oh, I don't like television at all. Oh, really? <laughs> no, I can't stand it. <laughs> did you have to? Well, you probably had a lot of the commercials and stuff like that. You had to find uh, sponsors and things like that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. No, it's it's the it's just the idea that that uh, being recognised in public, I didn't like. Um, you know, on a go, catch a train, catch a train down to Sydney. I live about two hours west of Sydney, catching a train down to Sydney, and people coming up to you and wanting your order. I'm nope. a very private person. Oh yeah, I just I just don't like that, and I don't I don't uh, yeah I don't like being recognised in public. There you <laughs> and go. I don't like the fact that people. I don't like the fact that people put have huge expectations of you because you're on television. Therefore, you're you're going to be full of stories and jokes the whole time. You know that you can that you're automatically the life of the party because you're on television. Well, I'm not. I'm, you know, I, I, I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm a pretty quiet sort of guy, really. Yeah. So, so I, I, I have no, I have I have no problem handling public appearances and doing all that but mm-hmm. uh you know and my private life is very private and i think television being on television unless you're prepared to handle that kind of of um uh, let, for one of a better word let's call it public adulation mm-hmm. unless you're prepared to handle that just stay away from it you know right yeah unless you love it, it, unless- it yeah, in trying to protect your own privacy, you can also be be it can very quickly be misconstrued as being unfriendly or or a snob. Or, can you, know, you give oh, us a up, can you give me like up. an example of of a situation where it kind of turned into something where it wasn't that enjoyable? You know, after the t- did, and how many years did you do the TV series? Uh, I think we did it over five years, four or five years. Okay, five years. <laughs> Mid nineties through to the late two thousands. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, from then on, I, I, after the TV series, I, I started a guiding business with a mate uh, up on Cape York, saltwater uh, fly fishing guiding business, a fellow called Alan Phyllis Kirk. And we had a we had a mothership up there that we leased, and look, uh, a lot of people probably came on that mothership because. I was on board, mm-hmm. but the the expectation the expectations put on me to perform like a, a bloody monkey. All right, you know, performing monkey. Just, I just wanted to go fishing. I just wanted to take people fishing, and to to put that in the background in the past. It's in the bloody past. That is not me. That is not who I am. This is who I am now, uh, you know. So yeah, yeah. I I, um, I I I guided up there for a couple of years, and I um, I actually got very frustrated with the with the uh, the lack of skill uh, in a lot of people when I was guiding. And anyone who's guided will know exactly what I'm talking about. That that uh, the expectation put on a guide to put people onto fish and you know your your stalk and permit or right. or whatever on the flats and they just 
can't handle the conditions and make the casts, and it's the bloody guide's fault. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, yeah, I, I gave up on that pretty quickly. Yeah. And went back to photography and, gotcha. and so on. But yeah. that was a real that was a real lesson for me. And uh, at that time, I, although I'd had a pretty pretty um, pretty solid grounding in fly casting, thanks to a couple of good mates, uh, it was that point that I realised that it really is at the heart of the sport. And if you want to be good, become a a better fly fisherman, just go and learn how to cast better. You know. For me, for me, it defines the sport. I, with there are often conversations about, you know, oh this fly or that fly, that's not a fly, or you know, <laughs> you can't do that. But for me, the sport is very clearly defined by fly casting. That's that is at the heart of the whole game. Uh, we don't put bait on the hook, and we don't troll the flies behind a boat. We cast them, and to become a better fly fisherman. You must become a better fly caster, you know. Yeah. And it, it's just—it's just that fundamental. So I really started focusing on my casting and and uh, sort of uh, post guiding days and and started to, yeah, really try and make something of that. Yeah, and, and you are—I thought I saw something out there. Where are you working currently on your uh, certification or, or some part of that, or is that already done? Uh, I'm a—I'm an MCI with the. Federation of with Fly Fishers International, as they're known these mm-hmm. days. Uh, I got my MCI level of uh, casting instructor certification in 2009. I'm working towards my spay casting instructor. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. I recently failed my test in in uh, in Tacoma, in Washington. I was in the U.S. and uh, sat my test. I had a Man, the nerve, the nerves can just kill you in that game. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, we we've talked a little bit about it on here. I've had some uh, some pretty decent uh, spay casters that have that have told the story uh, way back in episode seven, I think it was. Um, yeah, uh, we talked about how. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could be a great. You could think you're a great. You can be a really good caster, but when you get in that situation, it, it's it's a there's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure, and uh, I mean, my my issue in Tacoma. I'll run through my excuses. I've had them in my head ever since. <laughs> <laughs> I I just had a bad night's sleep. I couldn't get to sleep, and you know, at one thirty, I was still wide awake. One thirty in the morning, I'd had a brilliant day at the at the lake where I was testing the day before, and I was ready. It was just, oh, I'm going to smash this. <laughs> no kidding. And two thirty, I was still awake, and uh, I I took a I took an antihistamine pill at that stage just to try and knock the edge off, and I, um, you know, I woke up a bit late and was a bit fuzzy in the head, and th- and that's enough. Yep. You know, enough. There's just there's they set the uh, the FFI set the bar at a very high level. Huh. Uh, I like to think it's the peak body for fly casting instruction worldwide, and I uh, I choked. Yep. As they say, and uh, I, I, you know, I threw a couple of tailing loops. I think in the overhead, the overhead task pretty early on, and and sort of that was that. It was downhill from there. But anyway, I'll I'll front up again. Yeah, I'm, I'm back back in the saddle after all that disappointment. And uh, but I went on from there. I went on up to BC and spent ten days fishing up there with Simon Gorsworth. Oh, cool. 
and a mate of his, and we we flogged the Skinner and the Bulkley to froth. <laughs> Simon got one steelhead. Gee, they're having a poor season there. Yeah, I heard that. I heard that. I I, I got a bump. Oh, cool. I did get a bump. Yep, that, that that's something. You know, at least there's a telling you there's a player out there. I, that's a. Uh, I haven't been up there in quite a while, but that that is pretty amazing. Uh, well, it's steelhead fishing. You know, I mean that that's it. You, I've talked to a, the first thirty episodes of this podcast were mostly focused on steelhead and. And, yeah, yeah, you know, and and that's the steelhead thing, you know. Whatever you want to say, it's uh, you could be the greatest fisherman in the world, and you could you could get skunked, you know, tomorrow. No, yeah. no, no problem. That's a hard game, that one. But uh, I actually really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the, um, yeah, that that whole world, that whole scene, mm-hmm. and I'm really really enjoying the space stuff. But um, yeah, yeah, off to, off to New Zealand soon. I've, New Zealand's got some wonderful big rivers. Uh, I mean, huge rivers that are very, very lightly fished because everyone goes there and fishes the the small to medium sized rivers. I, I go there and focus on the on the big rivers that have big populations of fish and huh. take the trout spay gear and and swing swing yep. away. I love, absolutely love it. There you go. Uh, that's perfect. Yep. Well. Yep. Um, yeah, maybe we can just turn this a little bit and talk a little bit. I mentioned uh, Bear Monday at the start, and um, maybe we can just dig into that a little bit. I'm not sure. I, we haven't talked about uh, that on this uh, show yet. Uh, maybe you can just sure. talk us, take us to your your home water, wherever you you know you fish for them there, and and take us through how you get into those fish, and maybe a little bit about what what it's all about. Okay, sure. Um, so the, the barramundi are a, a long way from where I live. I live. Um, so they're a tropical fish. Uh, let's get that clear mm-hmm. first. Uh, all along the eastern Australian coast uh, in Queensland, they come as far south as as the Tropic of Capricorn, uh, right across the north uh, into Western Australia. That's their distribution. They are, I will say, my favourite fish. Um, you know, I, I do a talk for clubs and I do a talk on my top ten or my, my ten most favourite fish. And barramundi are number one. I, I put a lot of time into thinking about the order of these fish. And it has changed over the years, but barramundi are definitely number one. I absolutely love fishing for them. They live in a wide variety of habitats. One thing I will say about them is uh, 95% of the places you catch them, you also find crocodiles, saltwater crocodiles. So they're not generally a wading fish. (laughs) (laughs) I've had some close encounters with crocodiles over the years uh, in the north of Australia, but there are some places – um, where you do find them along the beaches and around the rocky headlands of the coast. They are a uh, an eerie hayline fish, so they can live in fresh or salt water. Hmm. They are, as I mentioned earlier, catadromous. They spawn at the mouth of these uh, the large estuary or tidal estuarine rivers in the wet season. And the fry, the, the best barramundi fishing systems have large lagoon or swamp systems 
at the back of them that flood during the wet season, during the monsoon season, and the fry will move back up into those lagoons and swamps to do their growing. They're very mm-hmm. fertile, full of weed beds and frogs and all sorts of small fish and mm-hmm. shrimp, and you know, so they do their growing in those uh, in those systems. Now, all barramundi are male at birth. At a certain size, and this is different in different waters, I think there's about 13 different subspecies of or regional subspecies of barramundi, and at a certain size, some of them become females. But all the big ones are females, and and this the size that they switch to females, so they're hmm. a bit of a modern thing. They're transgender. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, so the big girls are all breeders, and they are followed around on the flats by on the mud flats by a, a cluster of young males, randy young males, and they do their spawning, and the fry go up. And a lot of places, a lot of the the areas with large swamp systems, by the, the a lot of them are sort of up around that uh, eighty centre mark where they switch to females. By the time they get flushed out of those swamps. So they might be they might be isolated in swamp systems for a couple of years and in that time they grow and then they return to the salt and do their breeding again. Mm. So the, the cycle starts again. So you can catch them up in the swamps. You can catch them in the rivers between the swamps and the ocean, mm-hmm. uh, which is where most people fish for them, but that's also the area that swamp area and that river system is the where the crocs live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's, so, what's your close uh, – um, you mentioned a close encounter. Has that been just while fishing out there, run into a few? Uh, yeah, run into a few then. Um, uh, run into – when we were on the mothership, I, I had one very close encounter at 3 in the morning um, when I'd, I'd got up. So the mothership was a was a catamaran, and I'd got up for a pee at three in the morning and went down off the back sponsor of the cat, and it was one of those dark, starry nights, moonless night with no wind, and and the water was full of uh, bioluminescence. Oh wow! It was extraordinary, and we had uh, we had six big groper that lived under the boat when we anchored in that system, in that river system, and. Uh, and they were lit up like constellations by uh-huh. this bioluminescence. So, so it's movement in the water that triggers the bioluminescence. Yep. And where where my pit was hitting the water was like sparks coming off an angle grinder. <laughs> and the propellers, the propellers of the skiffs are spinning in the water. You know, they're tied up next to the mothership, and they're spinning in the water, and there's spirals of bioluminescence coming off them. And I'm standing there just mesmerised. As you can imagine, and I look up and there's 14 feet of bioluminescent crocodile closing in on me. Jeez. <laughs> oh, you know, it was only 20 feet out and coming fast. Oh. And if it hadn't been for the bioluminescence, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. No kidding. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I was only a foot off the water and, you know, it was uh, oh. it was coming in fast. Needless to say, I peed all down my leg. Damn. <laughs> But, but anyway, um, there's been a, another couple of couple of uh, close encounters. But uh, I, w- I won't. Oh, yeah. one one I actually had a barram 
a barramundi on. I'd waded up. Uh, this is a very small tidal creek on, a, on an island, in an island system up in north east, northeast northern territory. And uh, I, it was a year I tried to catch a hundred species hmm. in a year in one on one rod. Oh, cool. Seven, yeah. And uh, that's another story in itself. <laughs> yeah. And I'd wandered. I, I didn't have a barramundi on my list, and I wandered up this the back of this bay, following this. So big tides in that part of the world, following this creek along the mangrove line, knowing that the first. So I'm on firm sand, and knowing that the first decent pool I came to it would have barramundi in it, and there it was right at the back of the bay. So this is dry sand, so the tide's out. Creek is still flowing out of the mangrove swamp, and there on the edge of the mangroves at the back is a pool, and I could see the barramundi, uh, when they're resting, their head down and their tails are in the air, like a tailing fish, mm -hmm. but they're not actually feeding. And I could see this bunch of barramundi tails, and I, they'll still feed. I threw a fly in there, and bang, instant hook up. Barramundi starts jumping up. The, the pool's about the size of a of a, a suburban swimming pool. Barramundi starts jumping, and this 10-foot crocodile comes tail-walking out of the mangroves oh. at the back of the pool. Wow. <laughs> I squealed and ran, still hooked up to the barramundi, and I'm running across the sand flat, dragging this barramundi, <laughs> and then real running. You know, it wasn't a big fish, about four or five pounds, and I was using a nine-weight rod. No, sorry, that seven-weight rod, and yeah. I'm running, dragging this fish, and this bloody crocodile is chasing the barramundi, and I realized <laughs> it wasn't me. It was after the barramundi, so yeah. I'm teasing. It's like I've got a sailfish on a teaser. <laughs> So did you, did you let go of the rod? <laughs> no, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. There you go. It was probably a sage, right? You couldn't let it go. Yeah, and the fish, the the barra, the barra chased me for about the barra. Yep. The crocodile chased us for about thirty or forty meters, and then realized, you know, it wasn't going to get the fish. I kept pulling it away from it, and it turned around and went back into the pool. But wow. Oh, that was that what, was an extraordinary. What's tailing? You you said the alligator came out. What did you say? Tailing or out of the? Oh, just tail walking. Just tail, tail walking. Like how, what is that? Just, so they actually are standing kind of upright. Exactly, just almost running across the surface oh, of the water. Oh wow, that's amazing. Oh, oh, scared the life out of me. Of course, I'm shouting. My mates are hundreds of meters away, and all all that was left was the 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 prince. Of the crocodile on the sand, that was all I could show them. <laughs> wow! And they is... came. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was that. Was, I was laughing at the end because I, I realised this croc was you totally were doing it. On the fish, teasing <laughs> him. I just kept pulling it away. Anyway, well, what's the uh, for a bear Monday? What what is a what's a big fish and what's a trophy size fish when you're talking about those females? Okay, so. Um, a wild fish, so the magic mark is a metre. Okay. So a metre, 37 inches. Yep. So we'll, we'll call it a 36-inch fish. A 36-inch fish, depending on the water it comes from, is going to be between 25 and 35 pounds. Okay. So a wild saltwater fish uh, is going to be, probably going to be leaner yeah. than 
a than a freshwater fish. Now, barramundi, we can also breed barramundi, and a lot of the freshwater dams or impoundments, as we call them, along the Queensland coast have been stocked with barramundi. And this is a fa- these are fantastic fisheries, like man-made fisheries. The fish go in as fingerlings, you know, the size of your little finger, and they grow, uh, gee, I mean, 80, 90 pounds. Hmm. So uh, these impoundments are stocked annually with barramundi, and in these, these man-made dams they grow, uh, they grow rapidly and they grow very, very large. Unless there's a flood event, they can't get over the dam wall to spawn, to get mm-hmm. down to the freck. Right. So uh, they, they're trapped in there and they just keep growing. And big ones are, have been caught up 80, 90 pounds. It, uh, my bet. 90 pounds? Yep. Well, and are these still then, if they're not spawning, they're, they're still males? No, they're all females. Oh, they yeah, they, they still have that size change. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, it's possible they the size change uh, or the, the the transition from male to female happens at a fairly large size in those impoundments. So I don't I don't have that figure. Um, but the fishing can be extraordinary. So it's it's uh, it's mostly sunken line fishing. Uh, it's sometimes sight fishing in winter when they get up into the warmer, uh, shallow bays and backwaters. So on the on the uh, in the estuaries and the tidal rivers, we like to fish on the the neap tides. These rivers have a very big tidal variance between high and low tide, and on the neap tides you get cleaner water. Now you really have to fish from a boat, and you're fishing back. To the bank in most situations and these fish live in amongst the snags and rock bars and oyster rocks and what have you and they they're an ambush feeder and they'll take up an ambush position in a place where the mullet are going to be uh are going to be sort of caught in an eddy or a swirl and they'll sit under that and they'll just smack them from underneath they're not a not a great surface feeding fish uh, there are times when they will feed off the top. So generally you need to go down to them. I I fish an intermediate line and usually reasonably well-weighted flies. There's a, a wonderful fly called a pink thing, which is an iconic Australian barramundi fly, mm-hmm. uh, sort of similar to a, one of Dan Blanton's whistler patterns, but it started out as a lefty's deceiver and they put a pink collar on it. And uh, it's it's a deadly fly tied with bead chain eyes or heavier eyes for deeper water yep. and faster flow. And you're casting from the boat back to the bank, letting the fly sink into the cover, uh, strip, strip, strip with a pause, and they usually hit on the pause. Hmm. Now, a lot of people have dis- tried to describe what's so special about barramundi and uh, – from everything I've read, no one has come close to quite capturing exactly what makes them so special. But I tell you that the hit is like a hammer blow. Hmm. They hit the fly so hard, and then they head straight back into the cover that they've come out of. 
and you've got to stop them. And then they jump, mm. and they're a wonderful jumping fish. They're very hard to get a hook into. They've got a mouth a bit like a tarpon. Uh, if you if you lift the rod to set the hook, you'll drop drop them every time. You you must strip strike, mm-hmm. and then it's all hand to hand stuff. There's no there's no fighting these things on the reel. <laughs> you know, you, you, you've you've got a you've got a strip line, and you've got to haul them out of the cover. Uh, it's real brutal hand to hand stuff. So you don't have enough time to even get them on the reel. Nope. Huh. If you if you stop to clear the light, like you yep. might be throwing uh, uh, 56, 50 foot casts, and they've you've stripped twenty, they've hit the line of the fly, sorry, thirty feet out. You've got twenty feet of line. If you try and clear that line without getting the fish, without beating the fish first, and it's probably going to get you back into that cover. And and if it's in among logs or rocks, they're going to be covered in barnacles and oysters and stuff, and that's the end of that. You, you're probably going to lose a fly line. Oh, wow. Yep. It's, it's yeah, we call it give no line techniques. Give yep. them no line. You're using, you're using the spring in that nine-foot rod, and I like to fish a nine-weight most of the time, yep. sometimes eight, sometimes a ten, but a nine is a really good uh, compromise with an intermediate line or an intermediate tip line and a heavy fly that's going to hang in the snag hmm. and it's you know it basically it's take a wrap and haul them out of there yeah so these uh, fish don't really take off and run for a hundred meters downstream or anything like that nope it's a wrestle yeah gotcha <laughs> wow but they'll jump but they'll wrestle but then they'll jump right in there right in close or or how far abs- how far are you casting typically so typically uh because you've got to be accurate. I mean, you really, you really got to get your fly right into the cover. You want, you know, forty to fifty feet is about all you need to okay. cast. But it's got to be accurate, and you've got to know the sink rate of your fly and your line. You know, it's a bit like shooting birds on the wing. You've got to be able to put the fly on the upstream side of the current and then calculate its sink to the point where it's. You know, at its prime depth in the snag, we fish flies with weed guards on them, snag guards on them, so you can mm-hmm. w- walk them through the timber. And of course, the fish don't have far to go once you hook them. Mm-hmm. Um, on at periods uh, of, of of a good a good bite period, they'll be out from the snag a bit, but a lot of the time they're just right back in that cover. And you know, the other side of barramundi is that they're such a beautiful looking fish mm-hmm. a saltwater barramundi is like polished silver right. so beautiful uh the freshwater swamp fish become quite dark their tails are black but a saltwater fish has bright yellow tail huh. and um that yeah just beautiful looking fish just nice. they've got so many wonderful qualities about them well, I love fishing for them. Yeah. I'll, I'll put a couple of uh, links in the show notes to some photos, and maybe I can find one of you with a barramundi out there and toss that in for people to take a look at. Um, you mentioned writing earlier on. I know you've written, you've got some books and some stuff out there. Is there a you know, a piece of work you're maybe most proud of or something you wanted to talk about here? Yeah. I, I, there's a book I self-published called A Few Great Flies and How to Fish Them, and specifically how to fish them. It sort of started out as a, 
as a fly pattern book for Australian saltwater fly fishing. But um, I realised that all of that stuff's online these days, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I realised that the short the shortfall is how to actually fish flies. And uh, this book focuses on what I consider the three fundamentals of good technique. One is your fly selection. Two is the depth you fish it at. And three is the retrieve that you use. So I call this the FDR principles. And I self-published that book. Um, It's available. I'm very, very proud of it, Mm -hmm. I must say. Um, It's become a bit of a bit of a classic in this part of the world and it's still available it's available through my website yep um yeah i uh i'll put a link out that to that to your site and and that book as well so people can take a look at that um well i think we're going to try to wrap this up real quick i got a a quick little rapid fire round i actually had a listener joke with me recently he uh he said an email had said that uh He's never heard the rapid fire. <laughs> it's never really that rapid, I think, is what he said or something like that. But I'll try. To, I'll, I'll try to make this one go a little bit faster. And I've got a few yep. questions for you here. Um, one of them, and actually, this this question came from another listener of the show, and, and he um, he came up with his own question. This is, I thought, a really good question. Uh, you know, and I didn't know who I was going to ask, but he said, um, you know, what in fly fishing is ripe for disruption? You know, when you hear somebody say that, if somebody asks you that question, what would be your response? Is ripe or right? Yeah, no, like ripe as in a, a fruit being ripe, you know. So basically, you know, what, what needs to be disrupted in fly fishing? Is there anything that needs to be shaken up a little bit or, you know what I mean? Like, is there anything that's stagnant about fly fishing? I guess there's a few ways to look at that. Or, or do you feel that things are going pretty smoothly in the fly fishing world? Oh, things are going pretty smoothly, and I can only talk about this part of the world. Uh, th- things are going pretty smoothly here. I, I think the use of really excessive leaders, uh, you know, like guys fishing oh. 200, crap like that is just rubbish. You mean like uh, fishing the, the, the metal tippets and stuff like that? or? Uh, it, look, there are some species that require metal bite tippets. I mean, wahoo, barracuda, um, uh, you know, you just can't get away with without wire bite tips. So I'm talking about fishing straight through 100 and 200 pound leaders. Oh, wow. uh, you know, not 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 acknowledging anything to do with the IGFA right. system, or uh, it, it's almost like a, a neglect of not tying skills. Um, look, I could go down quite a long path there on what yeah. I think the fundamental skills are, but I also think that. But being able to tie good knots is is an absolute fly fishing core skill. Yep. Be- because we need to manufacture leaders, uh, often tapered leaders. Um, we need to often fish quite fine tippets. This crap of fishing 100, 200-pound leaders, yeah. so you can't pull that much through a fly rod. You know, the, the <laughs> Well, why are people doing? I've never even I, I haven't heard much about this. Why why would somebody want to use? And what species are they going for when they're u- needing to use a hundred two pound hundred pound? Uh, uh, often billfish. Yeah. And uh, GTs, big trevally on the flats. And what's a typical uh, a normal uh, size you might use for GTs or, or billfish? Uh, heaviest I'll use for billfish is thirty pounds, oh, which wow. is not even. Not not IGFA. Yeah. Uh, IGFA. The maximum you can use is 
10 kilos or 22 pounds. I'll fish 30 pounds. Uh, Billfish off, uh, sorry, GT is 40 pounds, maybe 50. Um, yeah, I, yeah, yeah I, I, I just, just stop doing it, guys. You know, yep. it's crap. The <laughs> most I've ever, most, and we did a lot of pull, pulling tests with heavy duty fly rods, like 16, 17 weights, and the most we could pull was 22 pounds. You know, yeah, dang, that's stop. crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. All right. Well, that that is a good actually. That's a good answer to that question. Um, let's jump into. Um, you mentioned one fly as far as the pink thing. Is is there another top fly you had mentioned for uh, Bear Monday that that you would use other than that one? Um, yeah, it's it's a fly I came up with myself. I call it a gusto because that's how they eat it with gusto. Uh huh. It's a very very simple pattern with a, a marabou tail, um, a a heavy chenille collar followed by a a wound schlap and collar in front of it. So there's a lot of movement in it. Yep. Uh, yeah, pretty simple fly. That's in my book. Oh, okay, <laughs> cool. Yeah, yeah, we got your books. We can and, check these and, out. And so is the pink thing. And the pink thing. Okay. And um, yeah. I'll just keep this as on our uh, kind of the, the typical, uh, the 222 questions I ask. And, you know, the other two questions are, um, you know, if you had a couple of tips for Bear Monday. Has anything come to mind if somebody's out there, say they find themselves down in your neck of the woods and they're, they're trying to get their first fish? Any, any tips you give them to help them find a fish or hook up with one? Yep. Uh, low tide period. Okay. Um, you will, in, in most situations, you will need a boat. So get a guide. There are some good guides. Yep. Uh, most situations. Um, uh, cast accurately, know your sink rate of your fly, um, be persistent. They do have bite periods. They do move up and down the river constantly during the tide. Hmm. Um, use, yeah, you just need a, a good good bag of skills to get yeah. paramundi. Sounds uh, you like You know, that. yeah, <laughs> you can get lucky. You can get lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what about? like, you know. What's you that? Like. A bit like steelhead fishing. Exactly. Yeah, you could definitely get lucky on that for sure. Yeah. Do you get any with the 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 bear money? It sounds like they either hammer it or they don't hammer it, or they're not really playing with the the fly too much. Uh, they will play with the fly. Yeah, that can be terribly frustrating. They'll suck that fly in and blow it out quicker than you can ever react. Oh right. And you can when the water's clean, you can see it happen. Oh man. You. Oh, it's so frustrating. Yeah. Well, what about um, a couple of resources? Is there anything, if somebody, again, was going for Bear Monday for the first time, is there any, you know, books, magazines, uh, videos, anything you'd recommend? It could be maybe somebody else's stuff or anything that could help them. Yep. Sure. There's a, a really good book about Bear Monday written by Australia's, one of Australia's real pioneer saltwater fly fishermen, Rod Harrison. Um, he has a good book out on, Barramundi. There's a lot of lure fishing in there, not mm-hmm. not not just fly fishing. Sure. Uh, uh, there's probably a lot of good sources of, of, of Barramundi instruction and fishing on YouTube. You just need to just need to put your Googles on and yep. and have a look. There's you know, there, there's there. so much stuff out there. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's there's a there are magazines and and magazine stories. Yeah, it, it, the info's all out there, Dave. Yeah, you know, it, no problem. These 
Yeah, yeah. I, I know. That's good. Well, um, I'm going to skip. I'm not going to be able to get to all of our, uh, you know, the little uh, random questions, but I'll, I'll pick out a couple uh, uh, a couple here. One of them, you mentioned the 100 species in a year. That's pretty – we've talked a little bit about, you know, there's some people out there doing the species game thing. Jeff Courier, I think, has like 400 species and things like that. But, you wow. know, I, I mean, like for you, do you have a bucket – I mean, do you have a spe- – species or a list that you're you want to target before it's all over or you just kind of you know (laughs) what's your take on that yeah i'm on i'm on 300 311 species are you really yep oh wow so you're you're so again this this keeps coming up i asked jeff you know who was number two well we didn't know if jeff's i'm assuming he's number one but so you're you're right there you're kind of in that in that game yeah, I, I I could talk about this for a while, but I, I think it's really important. Um, uh, you know, I'm asked, you know, I'm practicing casting where I live, and oh, what people say, oh, what do you catch? What do you catch fly fishing around here? Where are the trout around here? And I said, well, you know, it's just I do my, my, most of my local fishing here in summer is for carp. I go yeah. sight fishing carp. I love yeah. it. Yeah, for sure. So. For me, recognizing, you know, all fish, all waters, we can fly fish for all of them. And uh, and just recognizing that and accepting that is a, is a big part of this. And that's why I started this species thing. I'm patron of a group called Boneheads, and we get together every year, and we just racked up our 200th species for the group this year, this year. Oh, wow. And I sort of encourage the guys to to keep their species list just for the sheer hell of it, you know, so that when someone says, "Oh, what do you catch on fly?" you can you can say marlin or sailfish or GTs or mm-hmm. barramundi or trout or whatever. There's just no limit yep. uh, in my view, and we shouldn't limit ourselves. They're all significant to me. Every one of them has some significance. They have some place in our world, you know, in our fly fishing world. Yeah. I, I Yeah, the, the 100 species in a year was something I set out to do I on one rod. <laughs> no that, kidding. That, one, that line? Cha- one line? Mm-hmm. A, a bigger pardon? Uh, did you use one line as well? No, no. Oh, no, I'd never limit myself like that. It there was you go. Bad, <laughs> enough, <laughs> bad enough limiting myself with one rod. Yeah. The, the cruncher in the story is that we lost the rod overboard on 64 species. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah. But I went on to catch them to get 100 that year, but on, on different rods, obviously, after that. Oh, no kidding. Wow. And anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's fun. Cool. All right, Peter. Well, I think um, I think we can probably end it there. I, You know, definitely there's um, a, a bunch of stuff we can, you know, maybe on the next one we'll, we'll have to dig into deeper if we can get some time down the line. But, um, you know, in the next six to 12 months, anything uh, you want to let us know going on with yourself or anything else uh, in your world? Sure. Cool, mate. Will do. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm. as I say, I'm pretty stuck on this spy thing at the moment. Oh, that's and, right. Uh, I'm off to New Zealand in a few weeks, and I've packed the trout spay rods. And you know, I'm I'm really enjoying this new new world for me. Um, yeah, new challenge: uh, tying the flies and learning the techniques and of casting and how to and how to fish it. That's been really interesting. And I've got a great mate in New Zealand, Steve Tedesco. Uh huh. And I've mentioned Steve to you, and we we fish together, and yep. I learn a lot. 
he's out he's out it all the time but uh, more more than happy to stay in touch mate and uh thanks very much for your time yeah yeah i appreciate it peter and if people want to find you they can just go to wildfish.com.au to if they have any questions or uh, want to catch catch up with you yep no problem mate no okay. problem all right peter well yeah thanks again for coming on i really appreciate you taking the time here I, we had a, a little bit of uh, technical stuff there and i know uh, i think it took a little bit longer but no i um, you know, I think you're obviously a big name in your neck of the woods, but I think, um, I didn't hear you, you know, I heard you from somebody out here for, so I think your, your, uh, you know, your lore is growing, you know, around the world. So I think it's, it's good. And I, I look forward to keeping up with you. Thanks, Mike. Can I tell you a very funny story before we go? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You got a moment. Oh yeah. So I'm, I'm up on the Bulkley with, uh, Simon Gorsworth, you know, one of the biggest names in yep. fly fishing in the world. And uh, I'm, uh, we, we've come off the water and this fella pulls up in a truck and he's got his son in the truck. This is Sam, Sam from Smithers. How are you, Sam? Great to meet you, mate. <laughs> anyway, he's got his, his son in the truck and uh, he wants to take his son down to cast, to, to his first shot at catching a steelhead on a two-hander on the Bulkley. And Simon and I have just come off the water and we run into Sam, and Sam says, oh, do you mind if I go down here and fish? And, and, uh, and you know, yeah, no problem. And uh, and uh, and he clearly recognised Simon. Oh, and okay. I, I go off, I go off to, to make a cup of coffee. We're staying in a, hut, in a place there, and I go off to make a coffee. And uh, he said to Simon, Simon told me later, he said, is that Peter Morse? No, oh, no way. Yeah, he was from Australia. Oh, really? <laughs> he was from Australia. That's that crazy. Oh, God, I laughed. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So so you are known uh, definitely around the world. Well, you know, I, I think obviously that's a destination spot up there in the Bulkley. So people, you know, are traveling around. And yeah. I mean, and you're in a destination as well. You know, it's one of those things where you got New Zealand next door. But I mean, I'll tell yeah. you, Australia is yeah. definitely on my bucket list. I mean, I, I want to get to New Zealand as well, but I, I'd love to maybe spend a month in Australia, a month in New Zealand sort of thing down the line as well. Well, you make sure you contact me first, mate, and I'll uh, do everything I can to steer you in the right direction. All right. put you, I'll put you on to some good people. All right, Peter. I appreciate it. We'll, we'll catch up with you soon. All right. Thanks, Dave. All Cheers, right, see mate. Bye. All right, bye. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all the links we cover, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 111. I'm looking for people interested in heading out to Alaska this summer with me and guests from the podcast. If you want to get more information and find out uh, how to get in on this trip, just uh, you can go to wetflyswing.com slash AK. That's the letters A and K. Um, I'm uh, uh, thankful that you're here and listening. I appreciate the support. Uh, you know, every time I uh, check in with uh, people out there, uh, it, it's always amazing to hear the, um, you know, the positive support and, you know, both both ways, the constructive feed, feedback and the positive uh, support. So I uh, just want to thank you for stopping by today and hope to maybe see you on the river or uh, out maybe online. 